Luke chapter 24, verse 13 to 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some, of, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as this woman had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Father in heaven, thank you so much again that you are a God who speaks and reveal yourself to us through your word. Thank you that as you reveal yourself to us, you show us not only your grace, your mercy, your character, your beauty, your awesomeness, you show us as well where we stand in relation to you. You show us that we need help. And so we ask, Father, that this morning you will help us as we come to you. That by your spirit, as you have promised, that by your spirit you will help us to understand your word and understand how it points to your son Jesus. We pray that this will happen so that we can see Jesus clearly, trust him more, 
and be filled with great joy. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. If you were asked, why did Jesus have to suffer and die, what would you say? What did you say? Some of you might have begun talking about how we are all created by God to love him, but we have sinned against him and that sin must be punished. And so Jesus comes as a substitute, his life for ours. And that would be right. If you were to dig a bit deeper, though, and really ask the question of why Jesus had to suffer, what is the meaning of his suffering, where would you go to find that answer? Now, if you had a bit of Bible knowledge, you might go to some places in the Old Testament. You might go to Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. You might even go to the sacrificial system in the law of the Old Testament. You maybe have gone, might have gone to Genesis 3 and the curses that rained down because of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. But I bet you didn't go to the genealogy in Genesis 5. And how many of us here in our discussion about why Jesus had to suffer mention the story of David and Goliath? In fact, apart from particular clear prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, what benefit is there to the Old Testament? Is it just a bunch of old stories, interesting but unrelated to our lives? And how should we be applying it, especially some of the weird stuff in there? Now, these questions have caused Christians in the past and in the present to argue that we should unhitch our faith from the Old Testament, that it's really not needed or necessary for our faith. One recent writer went so far as to say, in the Old Covenant, people relied on the Bible, but in the New Covenant, they just love people. You don't need the Bible, that is the Old Testament. You just need to get on with loving people. Now, this sounds very tempting, especially if you've started a one-year Bible reading plan and you've already, you know, one month in failed it, right? What if I told you that you didn't need to read two-thirds of your Bible? What if I told you that the easy one-third is all that you just needed to read? But our passage today reveals why this would be not only impossible, but foolish. And our passage today also reveals how we begin understanding the Old Testament. So as we come to our story, we begin our passage with two strangers walking on a road to a place called Emmaus, Jerusalem to Emmaus. Luke tells us at the beginning of verse 13 that the two of them were walking that very day. That's referring to what's just happened in the previous 12 verses. The Sunday after Jesus was crucified and buried, a group of women visited the tomb and found it empty. They ran back to the disciples, and Peter ran there to the empty to the, find the tomb empty as well. And on that same day that all of that happened, we have these two strangers walking towards Emmaus, a town maybe around a, a day's walk from Jerusalem. Now, we're not exactly sure who these two were. We're told, that, uh, we're named, told by Luke that one of them is named Cleopas, and he might be the same person that John refers to as Clopas, so if that's true, Luke is referring to Jesus' uncle, Uncle Cleopas, and his wife Mary, so that they might be the, uh, the two here. Cleopas and his companion are walking and chatting to themselves until a stranger pulls right up next to them. Now, they have no clue who he is, and Luke tells us very interestingly in verse 16 that their eyes, the eyes of these two, were kept from recognizing Jesus. 
Now, Luke might be stressing this, that this is actually really Jesus. He isn't some transformed, unrecognizable figure, and he wasn't a figment of their imagination. However, in God's sovereignty for the purposes of this story, he has chosen not to reveal Jesus to them just yet. That will come soon enough. And so this stranger Jesus comes up to the pair, and perhaps as a common courtesy, when you you meet some strangers on the road and you're walking in the same direction, he asks them, what are you guys talking about? And the air must have been thick with grief and confusion. You can see that kind of stress at the end of verse 17. That as, they, as Jesus asked his questions, they stood still looking sad. Cleopas turns to the stranger and says, Are you really the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard of what's happened lately? So Jesus invites them to share in verse 19. Tell me what happened. And so they begin their sad retelling of the story. They explain how their friend Jesus, a prophet in their eyes, was condemned to death by the Jews. The sadness is that they had high hopes for Jesus, even that he would redeem Israel, that he would be their long-awaited Messiah, their their God's Savior King. But his death, with his death, their hopes were dashed. Cleopas continues in verse 22, that something strange has then happened. He's heard reports from the women he knew that saying that Jesus' tomb was empty and that they had gone there and not seen the body and they had seen visions of angels and said, who said that he was alive. And in verse 24, with, um, the some who were with us probably refers to Peter and the others who also went to the tomb. They also did not see the body. Now, Cleus' retelling the story here is, is quite remarkable. Jesus died and he was seen alive. But notice the tone of the story. Cleopas isn't excited. It's almost as though he's not sure if the empty tomb is good news or not. He, the, the, the sadness kind of mixed with confusion and a, and a little bit of mystery. That's Cleopas' version, Cleopas's version of the events. In early 2017, a new phrase entered into our media usage, alternative facts. Uh, The phrase was first uttered by presidential advisor Kellyanne Conway in response to debate about the number of people who attended uh, Donald Trump's inauguration as president. Now, in the weeks and the months that followed, this phrase was laughed at. The, The alternative facts that she relied on were just not right. She looked at it at the same event, but she had it from a very different angle. Cleopas had seen an event. His version of events was from this direction, And now Jesus has to set the record straight. So Jesus speaks in verse 25 with a slightly sharp rebuke. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus is saying, don't you get it? Don't you, rem- don't you understand what I was telling you from the start? Don't you remember how I told you I was going to suffer, be killed, and on the third day rise, just as the prophets in the past had said I would? And so what does he do to convince them? He reads the Bible to them. Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, it's at this point as a pastor, I'm screaming at Luke. I don't care if you're in chapter 24. 
tell us what Jesus said. And we don't get the details. But here's what Luke does tell us. First, we're told that Jesus opens up the Old Testament. The phrase Moses and all the prophets was another way of saying the Old Testament. The first five books of the Bible are traditionally said to be authored by Moses and the rest of the Old Testament by the prophets. So Jesus opens up the whole Old Testament before them. Second, we are told that he uses the entire Old Testament to point to himself. Now, we're not exactly sure how he did that. I don't think he went verse by verse, but given the time of the day and the travel, he probably went thematically through the whole Old Testament. The point is that he demonstrated how the Old Testament helps us understand the meaning of his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Can you see how these verses are crucial in helping us understand the message of the whole Bible? One of the best children's Bibles, in my opinion, is the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it's not just great for adults, uh, children, it's fantastic for adults. Now, Sally Lloyd-Jones, the writer of the book, in the introduction to 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 this Bible, she says, There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you see a beautiful picture. Every story whispers his name. See, this is not just one way of interpreting the Bible. This is the way that we should be interpreting the Bible. Jesus himself makes this clear, not only here, but also later, a bit later in verse 44, when he speaks with his disciples and he does the same thing. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's not cherry-picking verses here and there that contain a prophecy or two. He's showing them how it all fits together, how each story and each part points to something about his character, his personality, his work, and his suffering, death, and resurrection. Let me give you some examples that I mentioned before. Genesis 3, Genesis 5, and David and Goliath. Genesis 3, what is that story all about? It's about the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God. It is the moment that we call the fall The moment where everyone gets trapped into this moment where we, like Adam and Eve, will constantly, we are bent towards rebelling against God. And this story reminds us and shows us and points us forward even that the curses that fall upon Adam and Eve and the earth and the serpent, they need to be reversed. The, The prophecy about a future seed of Eve who would come and crush the serpent's head that is, that is what we call the, the proto-evangelion, the first good news, the first gospel, because it says that at some point in the future, Satan will be crushed. And obviously that refers ultimately to Jesus. But how about Genesis 5? A genealogy. When you're flipping through Genesis in your daily Bible reading, right? you did that on, on January 5th, right? chapter 5, January 5, right? and you get to it and you go, wow, this is... Weird. So-and-so lived this long and fathered this person. 
so-and-so lived this long and fathered this. It's constant, right? What are you to do with that? But if you've ever read through that and noticed the theme of death that comes up, so-and-so lived this long and fathered this person, and then he died. So-and-so did the same thing, did the same thing, and then he died, and he died, and he died. The theme of death comes through loud and clear. Why? Because the fall that happened in Genesis 3 has ongoing repercussions. Death now stings everyone. And yet, there is also hope in that passage. Because in the middle of all those names, you actually end up having two lines that come out, two kind of lines in which God kind of chooses to work through one. There's the lineage of Cain, who we meet in chapter 4, he kills his brother, right? Seven generations from Cain, and you meet this guy called Lamech, who is a violent polygamist, right? He kind of represents the violence and the sin of this world. But through Seth, the child of Abel, you have a different line. And seven generations from Seth, you get to a guy called Enoch, who walked with God. There is hope even in the midst of all this death. How about David and Goliath's story? You know, so often we're told, or we're read, we're, we're told that the David and Goliath story is about a man who trusted God to defeat his Goliaths. But what's actually going on in this story? Sometimes we're told, you've got to trust in God, you've got to carry the five stones of faith and love and prayer and church attendance and tithing. And then you'll defeat the Goliaths in your life because did you know it was the stone of tithing that defeated the Goliath? All right? What is this story actually going? What's, what's, what's the story about? Let's have a quick think about this. David, right? Goliath is this big enemy. He's, he's the enemy of God's people. He's too massive, too tall. The army of Israel, they just cannot go against him. They're too afraid. He's an undefeatable enemy. And then along comes David, this little shepherd boy. Right? Someone completely unexpected. And he says, who is this man who, who dares to defy the army of God's people? Or who dares to defy God? Let me go up against him. And so he takes his little slingshot, strikes David in the head, and ends up defeating him. What is going on in that story? Step back for a moment and see what's happening in context. David and Goliath is 1 Samuel 17. David gets anointed as king of Israel in chapter 13. And did you know that the word anointed in Hebrew is the word Messiah? David is God's Messiah. In Greek, the word Messiah is translated as Christ. David is God's Christ. David, God's Christ, goes up against a seemingly undefeatable enemy on behalf of God's people and defeats him in a way that is also unexpected. What is David and Goliath's story all about? It's all about God's Christ defeating the undefeatable enemy in a most surprising way on behalf of God's people. You can imagine that this and more as Jesus is sharing all of this, the reaction that Cleopas and his friend would have had. As they walked and talked, the, the fog of confusion that these two disciples had starts to clear. 
Have you ever been in a conversation with a friend? You think it's only going for a few minutes. You look at your watch and two hours has passed. That must have been like that for Cleopas and his friend. A day's walk is gone just like that. Time and space, they seem to have meshed together as this stranger opens up the Bible and explains to them all that Jesus has done. And before they know it, they've arrived in the village and they invite the stranger to stay with them. Evening has descended and they need to, you know, it's a lot safer to stick together in groups and I bet they wanted to hear more. And then we're told in verse 30 that Jesus takes the bread at the meal, he breaks it before them and suddenly their eyes are open and they recognize him. Maybe it was the way he broke the bread. Maybe it was the first time they had a proper chance to see his hands and see the nail scars, the nails Uh, the scars where the nails were driven through. Something clicked in that moment. All of a sudden, they see Jesus. And perhaps with a wry smile, he disappears on them. Cleopas and his friends, they, they started this story in sadness and confusion. But now look at how the story ends in verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Did not our hearts burn within us as he was explaining the scriptures? Wow, as a pastor, I've had wonderful moments as I've taught and as I've preached the Bible, and people have been able to come away and go, wow, that was so clear. I've, I've understood that in a clear way, but this would have been far better, so much more better, only to have been a part of that conversation. As Jesus speaks, the sadness, their sadness and their gloom is lifted, and it's replaced by fire. The passion stoked within them caused them to immediately jump up and head straight back to Jerusalem. In the first century, nobody traveled at night. The threat of robbers and wild animals was too great. But the risen Jesus had just spoken with them. The risen Jesus had just interpreted Scripture for them. They had to tell the disciples. And so back they raced, breathless, no doubt, but the fire Jesus placed within them would not be exhausted even by a short marathon back to Jerusalem. They now understood and they now believed that Jesus' empty tomb was indeed good news. The resurrected Jesus had met with these two disciples. He had opened up God's word with them and shown them the meaning of his suffering and death. His words stoked a fire within them. And when they saw him face to face, nothing in this world mattered more than to tell others about that. Now Luke has recorded for us a fascinating story. One that points to Jesus in a very special way. And in some ways, a story that also asks us whether or not we have properly understood the meaning of Jesus' suffering and death. And this means that if we want to understand who Jesus is, what his mission was about, and what he accomplished, there is only one place to go. Jesus used the Old Testament. And for us here, we have the whole Bible. You cannot know Jesus any other way. Cleopas and his friend knew, friend knew the facts of Jesus, but in order to really understand the meaning of it all, they needed to be taken through the whole Bible. And the same goes for us. 
We cannot understand Jesus without reading the Bible. It's as simple as this. If you want to know Jesus better, know the Bible better. And the same is true in reverse. You cannot know the Bible without Jesus, especially the Old Testament. That big, heavy front two-thirds of our Bibles, that can only be understood in the light of Jesus. Like the chief priests and the rulers who mocked and crucified Jesus, they knew the Old Testament really well. The disciples who were with Jesus for three years, they knew their Bibles pretty well. But they, the problem was they didn't understand how it all pointed to Jesus, how Jesus really was the Messiah, God's Savior King. Only he wasn't coming as a powerful military ruler, but as a servant. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus wasn't coming to do something new. He was coming to do something the Bible was already preparing his people to see. But now that Jesus is raised to life, his disciples could see it. They had him explaining it to uh, to them. And for us, we have the Holy Spirit to explain it to us. The same spirit that equips pastors and leaders to teach from his word and to teach in a way that makes Jesus the key. So you cannot understand Jesus without the Bible. And we cannot understand the Bible without Jesus. Or to put it positively, to know Jesus better, we need to know the Bible better. And as we know the Bible better, we will see Jesus in the midst of all of it. Now, this means two things for our church. First, it means that if we are people committed to reading the Bible properly, and I pray that we are, then we as a church need to be committed to teaching the whole Bible in a Jesus-centered way. Again, because Jesus read the whole Bible as pointing to himself. So from up here in the pulpit in our weekly Bible studies, even down to our one-to-one Bible reading catch-ups, whatever material we are using, wherever we are in the Bible, our commitment is to see how every page of the Bible helps us understand the person and the work of Jesus. And that is hard work. It is hard work, especially if you're so used to just putting yourself into the passage. Be like Noah. Be like Abraham. Be like David. But instead of asking how we can be like these people, we need to first ask, how does, help, how does reading the Bible help me? How does what I'm reading help me understand who God is? And how does that help me understand Jesus better? Because if you don't do that, you'll end up in a, va- in a very bad place. Moralism is the default position of the human heart. And unfortunately, it is the habit of a lot of Bible teaching. It's where you take especially Old Testament passages, you find some connecting words to your life, and you directly apply it to your life. But when you do that, you're inevitably teaching yourself and you're inevitably inevitably teaching others to try harder. Now, there's time and space to be encouraged to work uh, at your faith harder, but the gospel is not try harder. If we're constantly hearing moralism, direct application of these Old Testament stories to your life in the 21st century, if we're constantly being told to try harder, 
you'll end up feeling guilty that you can't do it. How many times have you heard those sermons? How many times have you sat through those Bible studies? How many times have you been trained to read your Bible and to look at these stories and to look at these examples and to beat yourself up that you can't do it, that you should be doing it better? Be like David. Trust God more. But you'll find in life that you can't and you'll end up just feeling guilty. And then even David himself, while he trusts God, isn't perfect. He sins and he fails in spectacular ways. You know, when you get to 2 Samuel 11 and you see that story of David and Bathsheba, that's not just a story warning you against adultery. It's a reminder that we need a better David, a better Davidic king a better Messiah King who will not disobey God. If we're committed to the hard work of reading the Bible in this way, it will result in joy. This is the second thing that this means for us. Teaching the Bible in a Jesus-centered way should fill our hearts with wonder, joy, and help our hearts burn with gospel-shaped excitement. I was just having a conversation with a woman in between services, and she was sharing with me that some of the things she heard today, some of the songs that she's been connected, some of the things and the thoughts that have been churning in her mind over the past 12 months are finally beginning to connect. The story, the picture, the puzzle is connecting, and it's centering around Jesus. And you could see on her face almost tears of joy welling up. She's been a Christian longer than I've been alive. And it's beginning to click. And when it clicks, when we do this hard work, it will result in joy. This is not just a head exercise. It's not about being clever with the Bible and showing off clever teaching. This is a head and heart exercise. The goal of seeing Jesus in every page of Scripture is for your joy. The disciples on the, way, on the road to Emmaus, they experience that. And when you see the Bible in this way, it will unlock for you a new level of joy. It's hard work and it's our joy then to enter into the Bible and keep plumbing its depths to find more of Jesus in every page. Now, there are right and proper ways to do that, right? Not every stone or red cord represents Jesus. It is hard work to read it properly. And one of the best ways to do this hard work is to do it together. Our fellowship groups put the Bible front and center. So why not commit this year to a fellowship group and regular attendance? Not just for your head knowledge, but also for your heart. Working out how each story of the Bible whispers his name is not something that you have to work out alone. And it's exciting because the more you do it, the bigger Jesus becomes, the more lovely his character, the more wondrous his nature, the more beautiful his death for us. I mentioned at the start one writer who said that we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. And I, I wanted to read up more into why he said that. And he said, it seems that his main argument for this is because he's seen Christians in the past have bad readings and application of the Old Testament. But what a stupid solution. The solution is not to unhitch 
our faith from the Old Testament, the solution is to read the Old Testament rightly. Because when we read it rightly, we'll see more of Jesus and our hearts will be filled with greater joy. Let me pray to that end. Father in heaven, give us great joy. Give us great joy to understand more and more through every page of your word why Jesus had to suffer and die. Help us to fully grasp the meaning of your word joyfully and help us to keep doing this and to joyfully tell others about it as well. For we ask this for the glory of your Son in our lives. Amen.